Welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast, where we are rereading the Aubrey Matron books of Patrick O'Brien. You, as always, are with Mike. And with Ian. As we continue on in The Commodore. Ian, let's see, what were we finishing chapter two last week, looking ahead to chapter three this week? What's up? Well, last week, Mike, Stephen had briefed the Intelligence Committee back in London and had agreed to join Captain Aubrey's new squadron. Sir Joseph of Admiralty Intelligence had identified their highly placed mysterious adversary as the Duke of Habakstal. That's a name we've been mm. looking for for a long time now. Uh, Mrs. Broad at the Grapes had agreed to take in Emily and Sarah, which was great. Mrs. Williams had told Jack all of this really lurid gossip about Diana and about their daughter Bridget. And she would have told Stephen as well if it weren't for Jack's threat to throw her out if she did so. Now, Mrs. Williams's unlicensed betting office had been making her and her gossiping friend, Mrs. Morris, even richer and even more unpleasant. And having heard about Jack's new squadron, and having heard about Tom's promotion to post-captain, Stephen had gone to Barham Down, where he met the so far non-communicative Bridget, and also Clarissa, who's looking after Bridget. So, Mike, that was last time. This time, well, we've got some more family times here. We're once again with Jack's family. We are with Mrs. Williams as she sinks even lower in everyone's estimation. We're with mm. Stephen as he gets two surprises, one good and one bad. We get close-up views of the squadron. We get Sophie's concerns, Jack's musical abilities, and a lecture, you might even say a proclamation, on what a proper sick birth should be. Oh. So, Mike, we're going from yeah, fa- family to intrigue to, to aboard ship and back all in one chapter. There's a lot to take care of. Man. I am I am looking forward to this. Well, you said family. We're starting with, and we start exactly there, Ian. Charlotte and Fanny, Jack's daughters, are racing each other to the coach house, trying to be the first one to tell their father, Jack, that his new uniform has arrived. But unbeknownst to them until the last minute, their brother George, the younger brothers, beat him. He's taken a different route, which includes running through a bunch of thorn gooseberries and, and very upset to have been scooped. Charlotte is indignant that, that Jack, now having gotten the news from George, is not coming immediately back to the house to try this on. And I, mm. you know, I just, this was just such a refreshing, we're back home. You know, I love the sibling rivalry. And, and I love how Fanny, who seems to be kind of perhaps the most competitive of the, of the twins and very accomplished, even stops to help tidy up what she calls bloody George. And so I'm sure she means it both ways. So he yeah. doesn't cop it. That is get in trouble for our American listeners with the governess there for having run through these gooseberries and, and arriving all torn up and bloody here. It's great, isn't it? Every time we encounter the Aubrey kids, we get a smile and we get a nice little bit of family action as well. Now, Sophie and Mrs. Williams and Mrs. Morris have all arrived just at the moment before Jack finally gets to putting on this uniform and he walks out in, as it says in the text here, in all the glory of a flag officer. And he says, behold, the Queen of the May. And I like this little self-deprecating thing that we get going on from Jack here. That The Queen of the May, the May Queen uh, in a Midsummer Parade is the girl who kicks off the celebration for May Day, rides at the front of the parade, dressed in a white gown. She's the, you know, the, the, the summit of all of the affection and celebration of the town. It's a, it's a role... 
that Jack fancies himself in here just to make a point that he doesn't think he quite merits all of this attention and all of this kind of fanfare. He's teasing himself about the fancy dress, about maybe how his head might be swelling a little bit with the Nile medal and with the diamond chilenk and the ruffled shirt. Uh, and it's quite nice. We're going to come back later on in the chapter as well to Jack's own view of himself. Now, George has got no qualms at all about really being impressed by all of this uh, this finery. Oh, he says, oh, to be an admiral. And even Mrs. Williams and her friend are impressed. Charlotte wishes that her neighbour, the general's daughter, could see this so that she'd stop writing about the general's plume. There's, there's no rivalry like the rivalry between the girl and her neighbour. Jack hears the clock ring the hour. And just like always happens with Jack, the hour reminds him, <gasps> time is a-wasting. He hurriedly changes because it's time to greet a visiting captain. And he needs, in his own words, to look less like a seagoing peacock. So, Mike, <laughs> it, 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 it seems like the immediate family approve and Jack is you know, not too willing to take himself too seriously here. But I think there are other voices and other perspectives around the household as well. Yeah, this is all happy and rosy and wonderful. And I can I can see Jane Austen reading along with this smiling away. And yeah. then Jane Austen would also appreciate the fact that not all is well here. So even though Miss Williams and her friend were so, you know, kind of took their breath away seeing this, you know, they get over it. And at tea following this, Miss Williams and her friend's disapproving looks return as Mrs. Williams starts to ask if these extremely expensive clothes are part of an admiral's uniform. Is the captain, she asks, assuming a rank, a flag rank that she emphasizes, superior to his own? She recalls mm-hmm. him calling himself a captain when he was only a commander. Now, Sophie, and, and you know, we get to see, you know, we thought about what's changed while these guys have been at sea for years. Sophie has changed a little bit. Sophie, in a stronger voice than usual, especially when speaking to her mother, tells her yeah. that she is quite mistaken. A commander is always called a captain out of courtesy, and a commodore with a post captain under him the text says, is absolutely required, not just by courtesy, but by admiralty rules to wear the uniform of a rear admiral. So there, she added in a sotto voce, but not altogether unheard voice as the tea tree came in. So I want to say, yay, Sophie. Oh, definitely. And and yay for anybody, to be honest, who's putting Miss William, Mrs. Williams down a peg. Not the first time it's going to be needed in this chapter, I think. Right. Anyhow, we're still with Mrs. Williams, and she's telling us how her guy Briggs, or rather Mrs. Morris's guy Briggs, had heard over at Barham Down a man like a lawyer's clerk asking questions at the alehouse. She thought that maybe this is someone investigating a criminal conversation case, criminal conversation being an, an old civil law taught in old English law, um, sex with someone else's spouse. They, they, This was no longer a thing in English law after 1857, but I think it stuck around in other places for a bit longer. So she's imagining that maybe this guy is investigating a criminal conversation suit with Diana as the guilty party. But she says, the questions seem to be about Mrs. Oakes. And Mrs. Williams therefore assumes that it must be debts or perhaps that Mr. Wilson, the manager there, had had a wife somewhere and that maybe that's where the criminal conversation thing comes in. This is all partly just evidence of how Mrs. Williams is willing to believe the worst of everybody who's below her in the social hierarchy. But it also reminds us that there could be people out there looking for Mrs. Oakes, and we don't want that. She's on the inside of this story about the Duke of Habachstal, 
And we know that Sir Joseph had been taking an interest in her welfare earlier on in the book. So, Mike, I think this guy dressed up like a lawyer's clerk sounds like danger for uh, for Clarissa here. Yeah, yeah, I have to admit, Ian, had had me worried as well. Well, as as you say, you know, Mrs. Williams continues to sink lower. You know, she goes ahead and says that she had actually gone up to Barham Downs to see her grandies, and that she thinks Mrs. Oakes was too finely dressed for a lieutenant's widow. Again, this, you know, people below my social standing. And Mrs. Williams says that she questioned her closely, and, and we all know how Clarissa feels about questioning to begin with. And Mrs. Williams found Clarissa's answer short and evasive, she reports. And hmm. when you know Mrs. Williams told Clarissa that that's how she felt, Mrs. Oakes threw her out. And Mrs. Williams assured Sophie that she's going to be back. You know, she's heading back up there again. And Sophie reminds her mom that Dr. Matron is Bridget's natural guardian, with kind of a, a very loud but unspoken, you know, implied. And not yeah. you, mom, right? Yeah. yeah. But Mrs. Williams says the doctor is here today and gone tomorrow, and that he's been away for six weeks since he got home. And Sophie says, well, he's coming back tomorrow. Tomorrow we expect him at Ashgrove because he wants to be here for the final days before the squadron sailing. So here's a you know another one of those things that Patrick O'Brien just slips in. You know, Oh, by the way, six weeks have passed. Yeah, and, and not only does he just slip this in, we get an, a new tone of low mood for Stephen. And for a while, we're not going to learn where it comes from or what he's been doing. The text says, Stephen rode towards Ashgrove Cottage, somber from his long and unsuccessful journey to the North Country, somber from his stop at Barham, where he had heard of Mrs. Williams' barbarity, but with a somberness shot through and through with a brilliant gleam. And, oh, Mike, O'Brien is playing with us here. What's Stephen got to be newly somber about? But where's this gleam coming from? What's been going on up in the north? What's been happening? And it, it sets our uh, our attention up here, I think, for what's going to be happening in the chapter. And we're back with Stephen as he's sitting in a small, dry upstairs room at Barham. He's arranging his papers and specimens that Diana had put in his room just across from the nursery. The nursery, Bridget's natural playground, is full of unused dolls and hoops and coloured balls and a rocking horse. And this idea of children's stuff being unused sounds very, very cold and sombre and melancholy to us. And I'm about to join Stephen in a bit of melancholy when all of a sudden we get his perspective on what he hears. Stephen hears Padine. Padine is speaking clear, fluent, unstammered Irish. Something that he often did, did Padine, when he was throwing dice or mending a net. And Stephen's heard this before, and he's enjoying this kind of homely, agreeable sound. But as the text says, abruptly, he stiffened. The paper dropped from his hand. It was exactly as though he had heard a faint, childish voice cry, Twelve, or something very like it. Twelve in Irish, of course. And Padine takes up the conversation that Stephen's listening to. For shame, breed honey, he says. And he goes on to tell Bridget how to pronounce the Irish word for 12 correctly. And he counts from 1 to 12 in clear Irish. And then Stephen hears Bridget repeat the 1 to 12 with exactly Padine's Munster intonation. There's a golden lamb. God and Mary and Patrick bless you, said Padine kissing here. Is how this little conversation comes to an end. And he goes on to tell her, still in Irish, how to continue playing the game. And this is all interrupted as the dinner bell clashes in Stephen's ear and he's straining to hear the conversation. This is a very 
um, intelligence agent way of getting caught up on your daughter's intellectual development. Not not for the last time this chapter is Stephen going to going to play his intelligence agent cards in his family situation here. He hears Padine and Bridget walking into the hall, and Padine is carrying Bridget on his back, and they're murmuring into each other's ears. I'm like, I, p- part of me really loves this moment. I'm like punching the air because now we've got some progress for Bridget. Now we've got a connection that she's making with another human being, somebody we trust. Now we've got maybe an explanation for some of her partial kind of linguistic development early on. So that's the the, the good part for me. Part of me has got a bit of a reservation, though, because I was right there with the idea that Bridget's neurodivergent and that she's going to need some way of breaking out of the developmental shell that she's put herself into. And I'm because I'm interested in this, I'm a little bit disappointed that it's we are allowed to write this off as just being a consequence of her naturally being more comfortable speaking Irish than English. I don't think that goes along at all with the idea of her taking time to develop the language. It's not like she was born magically able to speak Irish until at last Padine came along to tease it out of her. So I, I feel a little bit like we've been hoodwinked just a tiny bit here. Yeah, yeah, it is. I, you know, I think, as you say, Ian, I, I remember listening to and, and reading Temple Graydon, a, a big mm. advocate on autism and uh, a woman who, you know, a doctorate, a really accomplished person who's, you know, whose mother was told when she was just a child, you know, you need to institutionalize her. You know, this is, you can never yeah. hope for anything here. And, uh, you know, I think she, she, like others, have stunned the world in terms of what this vast continuum is. And she's talked about how, you know, she didn't speak for a number of years. She talked about how Einstein didn't speak for the first three years. You know, so there's fascinating yeah. things like that. And then all of a sudden, you know, words come out. For her, it was, you know, she thought in pictures. And so words were really hard to get to. But like you, I was a little surprised that it's like, on one hand, I can see Padine teaching her to count in Irish. And I can absolutely see her being able to open up with Padine. I, I have an autistic nephew who it was, you know, as a youngster, a different person around our horses than he was around people. I mean, my goodness. Yeah. So it was, you know, they had this Padine like influence and he was, he was okay, you know, for the first time ever with somebody like touching him and holding him. If it meant mm-hmm. you could be touching him and holding him while he rode a horse, if that was the only way he could ride a horse, that worked out. And and he'd have these conversations with the horses that you know, you, you didn't have. So, but I, I agree. Um, I, I, but I, I do have to admit that that little hesitancy aside, I I was the same way, punching punching the ceiling, yeah. laughing, a little bit of a tear rolling down my eye. Here, it's like yes, 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 yes. Well, we move from this marvelous scene that Stephen's overhearing to a dinner eaten in silence between Stephen and Clarissa. And Clarissa says, well, you know, she really shouldn't have told Stephen about Mrs. Williams' visit because clearly his anger has taken away his appetite. She says she only told him because Mrs. Williams forced her way into Bridget's room and threatened to shake her if she didn't speak and that all that clamor had really shocked Bridget. And, and the text says, this is Stephen's reply. Sure, it angered me to hear of her conduct, the strong, self-willed, unruly shrew, but you were wholly and entirely right to let me know. If you'd not done so, she might have repeated the intrusion with all the damage that would ensue. Now I can deal with it. And he says that anger didn't take his appetite. Delight did. And he tells Clarissa that he's heard Bridget speaking to Padine in pure Irish. And this, you know, this, this, this really uh, 
kind of, I think Clarissa is also extremely happy. She says, you know, she and Nellie, one of the helpers there, you know, they've heard the two of them speaking, but they thought it was childish gibberish. They had no idea that this was Irish. This is language. So Stephen then goes on to tell Clarissa that he thinks that Bridget is now at a very critical stage and he does not want to rush in or unbalance her. You know, he says, you know, he wants to speak with his learned colleagues, learned in this area, Dr. Willis of Portsmouth, Dr. Layers of Barcelona. He asked Clarissa to take no notice of Bridget speaking, as, as Stephen says in the text, let the flower open. Now, again, he tells her that, you know, he's so glad that she told him about Mrs. Williams' visit. And he says in the text here, at the present juncture, her ignorant violence might wreck, spoil, desecrate. And, you know, just you can kind of see him just, you know, all right, getting so caught up with this. And it says, I shall cope with her. And Clarissa says, well, how are you going to do that? And Stephen says he's contemplating on the means. And, you know, Ooh. as you, you mentioned, Stephen, Stephen Matcher, an intelligence agent, right? Anytime he's contemplating on the means to stop you, that's not a good thing for you, probably. But I'm sure he's going to think of something. Yeah. And meanwhile, the, the means that he's talking about, the, the, the learning and the knowledge of Dr. Willis and Dr. Lairs, they're from the real world, right? They really are. So, we, and we've got, it's interesting, you know, it's chasing this down. We've got this Dr. Willis. There is a very famous Dr. Willis, 1718 to 1807. And so we think, hmm, 1807. So he's not alive in this time period. Maybe this is an anachronism. He was a clergyman, theologian, a, and, and later in life became a doctor whose passion was the sympathetic treatment of mental illness. He was actually called wow. in to treat King George in 1788, resulting in an almost complete restoration of his faculties for 12 years. And Stephen referred to this Dr. Wilson, in the 13-gun salute. So naturally, I thought, maybe here. Oh, okay. But as it turns out, while he had one son who became a rear admiral, he had two others that kind of followed in his footsteps. Both of them later helped to treat King George with his mental illness. But here, Stephen is referring to his son, John Willis, one of these two who lived to 1835. He was a Portsmouth specialist in the mental development of children. Now, the Catalan, the good Catalan doctor that Stephen refers to, I, you know, I really couldn't find a real world counterpart to this, but there is a town with his namesake in Northeast Catalonia. So at least it's hmm. a, a, a proper name here. Very good. And also a name that would have been geographically close to uh, Patrick O'Brien as well. Ah, exactly hmm. right. Well put. Yeah. And now this dinner conversation between Clarissa and Stephen is... Uh, is interrupted, you might say, by Padine and Bridget coming in as the pudding arrives. And I love this little exchange here between Stephen and Bridget. As he serves Bridget with her dessert, she turns her face to him. And the text says, he thought he saw a distinct look of acceptance, but he dared not speak directly. And towards the end of the meal in Irish, Stephen asks Padine to bring the little mare around and he asks for it in 12 minutes. And knowing that Bridget has just had a lesson in how to pronounce the word 12 in Irish, and it seems like he's nailed Padine's pronunciation intentionally. And O'Brien says, the words brought a quick turn of the small fair head, ordinarily immobile, absorbed in an inner world. And Mike, this is not a heroic ship-to-ship -ship action victory, but this is a, a, a victory for the parent and a victory for the child and for Padine as well that is another great high point for us. I think this is a really fantastic moment. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, this one absolutely crushed me. I just, you know, I was like, (laughs) yes. Oh, Steven, I'm there with your brother. She's looking at you, man. Wonderful. And and once again, how much of an intelligence agent is he, you know, what what a way for a spy, (laughs) what a way for a spy to go about building rapport with his young daughter by, you know, by, by setting up a a little contrived exchange and sitting back and observing, you know, Steven's not so far away from the spectrum himself. Yeah. Too true. Too true. Well, now we've learned what Stephen was gleaming about earlier when when O'Brien set us up there. But we still don't know what he was doing up north, but we return to his ride to Ashgrove. So we rejoin him. Stephen's continuing to ride. He's now up to Jack's plantations, riding across them, up to the knoll with Jack's observatory. And and I loved, you know, there's a great deal of exposition here on Jack's astronomical interest. And I particularly enjoyed the line in the text that says, for Captain Aubrey was not only an officer professionally concerned with celestial navigation, but also a disinterested astronomer. And, and I love this part, although one would never have suspected it from his honest open face, a mathematician. <laughs> And, you know, it qualifies as to say a late developing mathematician is true, but one of sufficient eminence to have had his papers on notations and the Jovian satellites published. So, you know, we're sending out a little mathematician love and astronomer love to our listeners here from us and Patrick O'Brien. And then Stephen greets Jack. And and this greeting is so similar to the artificial intelligence chat bot that we talked about last week to Jack Aubrey's kind of usual greetings to Stephen. So I I chuckled over that. And uh, he immediately rolls into, you know, Stephen, you must be back so close to your hour because you can't wait to see the squadron. And and, and he launches into all this news about the squadron and says, you know, Stephen, you want to have a look at this now? Uh, and then he remembers himself and stops to ask how he's doing and how his journey was. <laughs> Bless you, Jack Aubrey. Well, Stephen's well. He's glad to see that Jack's head is mended. We've almost already forgotten, I think, about the horse throwing Jack and the, the injury to the head. Even so, Stephen notices that Jack is looking sadly worn. And I think we're meant to see this in a, in a way that's not just connected with the head injury. Stephen's journey, we find out, had not gone as he wished. He hadn't been able to find Diana in this long journey to the north, but he did come across some of her horses with a man in Doncaster, which, for those of you who don't know, is in the north of England, including the Arabian mare called Lala, who he's riding. He'd mentioned two towns where Diana had friends, and Diana had also spoken of Ulster, where Francis lives, and Francis is Diana's cousin, Sophie's younger sister, who we met way back in post-captain. So now, as you said, Mike, we're sort of backwards and in reported speech after the event, we've got an idea of what Stephen had been doing in those weeks heading up to the north of England. Stephen has hired Pratt, another name from the past, the same thief taker whom Sir Joseph and Stephen had used on Jack's behalf in the reverse of the medal to try and disentangle what was going on behind the stock exchange fraud. He had hired Pratt to find Diana so that Stephen could tell her in person that she's laboring under two misunderstandings. And Mike, this this is Stephen's chapter for insisting on his ability to be positive in some way and insisting on the misunderstandings that he thinks can simply be explained and clarified. Two misunderstandings here are one, that Diana believes that her own presence had been harmful in some way to Bridget, that she had somehow by being reluctant had been useless and even harmful as a mother so that she had gone away. And she further that Diana thinks Stephen will blame her for leaving. He doesn't. 
That's misunderstanding number one, Diana not having her her head straight about what her role has been in this. The second misunderstanding is the probably simpler one, which is that Diana believes that Bridget has a condition that she calls idiocy, that she's developmentally retarded, and he wants to point out that she's mistaken. There were, he says, two children like Bridget in Padine's village. And the Irish call them Lenashi, that is to say, uh, children of fairies or children like fairies. Both of these children in Paddy's village had been brought into this world rather than another. And he thought this because they had been taken at a critical moment by somebody who was able to take them from their kind of disconnected world into the present world, that some kind of care and some kind of intervention had been helpful for these children. And Stephen says that Padin himself is a strangely gifted person, the kind of person, therefore, who maybe can do this, that is to say, bring Bridget wholly into this world. And the Anthony Gary Brown Guide for the Perplexed over on hmssurprise.org translates this Lena She Irish phrase, meaning child fairies, in a reference to the idea that fairies might sometimes abduct human children and leave behind changelings, you know, deformed or imbecilic fairies or elf offspring in the place of the child. So it's a, it's a bit got a bit of a negative connotation, but I think here he's trying to associate the idea of Padine and Bridget both being able to bring themselves into a world that's a bit more real and participate in the everyday world. We do have this great conversation between Jack and Stephen about Padine's abilities, how Padine had once, you know, there was a cat caught in a trap and Padine was able to take the cat, not get bitten or scratched and remove the trap somehow from him. There was a sultan's horse that Padine has this soothing touch around him and how he treats the patients and the, you know, so many times the invalid. So, you know, this strange gift that clearly Stephen had just witnessed how the two of them and confirmed by Clarissa can you know really interact with each other, and that's what Stephen wants for her, obviously. Yeah. Well, Stephen tells Jack what he had told Clarissa that Mrs. Williams has to be kept from Barham down, so that she doesn't upset Bridget's development at this critical point. And he tells Jack about Mrs. Williams' last visit and Clarissa throwing her out of the house. And Jack says that he has a great esteem for Carissa, for Mrs. Oaks. He says, you know, you know, anybody that can handle Mrs. Williams, you know, Jack's all for. Well, Stephen agrees about Mrs. Oaks. And Jack tells Stephen that Mrs. Williams and Mrs. Morris are actually waiting to see Stephen right now. That their man Briggs, who had, in, in Jack's word, played the informer once too often, had gotten caught and beaten up by a, a bunch of hands in a lane. And Jack's kids come running up saying that Grandmama, Mrs. Williams, had sent them out looking for the doctor, that he must go at once, that she's promised them a fourpence if they will send him straight to her. Well, they say the apothecary had bandaged Briggs up and said that he'll live, but they doubt it. The kids doubt it. And the kids ask Jack to look after Stephen's horse so that Stephen can leave immediately and they can collect their reward. So Stephen goes on in. He hears the women's story. He dismisses the women, examines this apparently injured Briggs, and is surprised. He's surprised that Briggs is so upset, so terrorized and prostrated by what seems to him to be a fairly moderate degree of violence. And he suspects a case of abject cowardice. And Mike, there's something that I spot. I think we're hearing it a bit in this chapter, and I've heard it a lot in other secondary characters that Patrick O'Brien writes about. He's, he's quite keen to show us a fairly disapproving view of 
men, especially men from what you might call British or European society, who lack physical courage, who aren't comfortable with violence. In this chapter, we had the story of young Jack and Hennage dueling. We had the story of the two sailors at loggerheads. Um, we've also had, do you remember the story of Scriven, the uh, the Purser's Clark, formerly author, who was a bit of a coward? And I wonder what's going on here. I think O'Brien seems to have a view somehow of British men needing to be what you might call the old-fashioned manly type with at least physical courage and maybe even an aptitude for violence. Don't know, maybe that's self-criticism or self-reflection on the part of O'Brien. Or maybe it's just the attitude of a man from the generation that fought in World War II and had to be okay with with violence and with physical courage. And it, it made me wonder. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. And you know, I think we'll see you know, yet another example of it a little bit later in the chapter. Yeah. Stephen goes back into the ladies and it says, if Mrs. Morris will sit with Briggs, he'll explain the treatment to his Aunt Williams since he may have to use some medical terms that would be embarrassing to a, you know, a, a woman that he's not related to. Because of this comment, uh, Mrs. Williams, when she's alone with Stephen, asks if they, you know, the robbers had cut Briggs. She knows that robbers often do that, she says in the text, out of spite, knowing that gentlemen do so hold to their, well, you understand me, <laughs> and and don't we all? And and you know, yeah. it's, you know, I thought this was a great contrast into your point about you know men being men and, and how we hold yeah. to our. Yeah, we understand. I'm, but I'm sitting Steve, here with my legs crossed, squirming. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly, exactly. Stephen assures her that Briggs is not a eunuch. He asks if she knows who did this. And she said that she had suspected the semen that Briggs had, in her words, very properly caused to be admonished, i.e. informed upon, but that Commodore Aubrey, practically a flag officer, she says, flatly denies it. So it must have been somebody else. And she now believes, because of the way they were dressed, that it's another gang of poachers. And here we're back again, Ian, to your point about status. Oh, well, if Aubrey is Jack, who she's had like very little uh, <laughs> reverence or appreciation of, now that he's almost a flag officer, oh yeah, his word is law here. Yeah. But <laughs> Stephen tells her that Briggs will be fine. And she goes, oh, good, good, because I want to quickly countermand the priest that I've sent for that because, you know, Briggs, you know, is a papist. And the priest won't charge me if he's told in time. So it's not that there was this incredible glowing concern over Briggs, but I might be able to save myself a few shillings here if I can turn that priest around <laughs> that I've called for last rites in time. Oh, and you got to love Mrs. Williams here. Well, you having do. ordered a little wine for Stephen, Mrs. Williams wants Stephen to know that she doesn't have anything against papist. I think she's now remembering, oh my gosh, this... <laughs> This guy is a papist I'm talking to. But but that's not what we remember her telling her daughters about Stephen in post-captain. You know, he's a papist, he's a foreigner, he's a penniless naval surgeon. And she asked Stephen if he has ever heard of Mrs. Thrale. Mrs. Williams, in, in kind of her, one of her classic bull in a china shop behavior, says, you know, in the text quotes, well, she married one, this Mrs. Thrale, that is a papist. After her husband died, a man of somewhat lower rank and even a foreigner. But now she's received everywhere, I understand. So, you know, Mrs. Williams, clearly not a moral compass we want to rely on. Mm -mm. Jack is a flag officer. Oh, this woman married a papist and a foreigner. But, ooh, she's still received in the highest of society. So I guess they're not all that bad. Meaning, oh, 
I forget. I'm talking <laughs> to you, Stephen. You are all of the above, right? And and this <sighs> Mrs. Thrail thing, besides it being just the the you know the clever foot and mouth for Mrs. Williams, you know, it kind of comes back and go, why Mrs. Thrail? And I have to um have have a call out to our consulting Latinist Karen Ruff here. The the POB muster book says that O'Brien's peacetime and domestic scenes, especially like those in Post Captain, were inspired by Jane Austen. And he writes, and perhaps also the social world of the Thrail family. And we've actually hmm. met this family a number of times. We remember Queenie that kind of helped raise Jack to yeah. her mathematics here. She got her nickname Queenie from Dr. Samuel Johnson. Well, her mother, Queenie's mother, is Hester Lynn Thrail Piazzi. She was a dear friend and correspondent of Dr. Johnson's. And in this questioning about Mrs. Thrail, uh, Karen said that when she was researching Horace's Latin verse from chapter one, when Stephen was talking about kind of the ravaging effects of time, she found that this verse was famously used in a letter from Dr. Johnson, who wrote it to, you guessed huh. it, Mrs. Thrail. And, and you know, she, huh. she wondered back then in chapter one, I wonder if that's what brought this verse to O'Brien's mind, because it's clear so many of these domestic situations that he points to, you know, are just like in this uh, autobiography, you know, Mrs. Thrale published her diaries. She published all her letters with Samuel Johnson. And so it was in this one letter where she was talking about a social situation similar and Samuel Johnson is writing back and quoting this verse. So well done, Karen, well spotted. And, and, you know, you look at the history of this Mrs. Thrale and, uh, you know, she's definitely one of uh, Patrick O'Brien's kind of women, a proto-feminist. Yeah. Um, her book, Retrospection, A Popular History of the Period, was resented by historians, you know, history writes, who resented this female intrusion into the male preserve of history. You know, O'Brien would love that. You know, and she also yeah. published this Anecdotes of the Late Samuel Johnson, as well as, as I mentioned, all her letters with Dr. Johnson. And a lot of people say this really helps fill out the biased picture that Boswell presented of Johnson. So because there's some not very flattering mm. things where Mr. Johnson's, Dr. Johnson's behavior looks a lot like Mrs. Williams in this. True. Yeah, very good. Goodness me, Mrs. Williams as a, as a, as a proto-Dr. Johnson. It's really <laughs> fascinating. Great. Thank you. Well, Mike, this is great. And Stephen now tells Mrs. Williams about the critical stage that his daughter's mental health has got to and warns her that any shock or setback might be disastrous. And he asks that she cease her kindly intended visits. And she clings on to this for a little while. She says she has a right to see her grandniece and that, that Bridget's childish, self-willed, stubborn, obstinate fancies are best dealt with firmly. A good shaking, the black hole, bread and water, and perhaps the whip answer very well and at no cost. And Stephen manages to keep his cool here. I, I don't quite know how. He says he wouldn't like to forbid her from coming to his house when what he's clearly doing is threatening to do exactly that. She says, well, I don't approve of this young person in charge of Mrs. Bridget. She means Clarissa. Her answers were unsatisfactory. She had a want of submissive respect to Mrs. Williams. And there have been rumours, she says, rumours of debts, inquiries in the village, questionable morality. Stephen says, I know Mrs. Oakes very well. I know her antecedents and her qualifications for looking after my daughter. 
And Mrs. Williams is still hanging on to claiming a role here. She thinks she should be appointed guardian. She should have right of inspection while he's away traveling. She has, she thinks, a moral and legal right to visit. Stephen, even so, stands fast. I disagree. If you do trespass now that I've made my views clear, he says, you'll be ejected by the powerful. And he says, dangerous Irish servant. And I think she's trying to conflate what Padine's powers of physical persuasion might be with the powers of physical persuasion that have been visited on uh, Briggs just a couple of paragraphs earlier. He also says she might get prosecuted for trespass and for keeping and having kept an unlicensed betting office. And in addition, he's really piling on the blackmail here. In addition, her man Briggs would be pressed into the Navy on a ship full of common, often violent sailors with no reason to love him, headed for the deadly West Indies or perhaps Botany Bay. And Mike, you said earlier on that we were speculating about what might be the means that Stephen might have found to control Mrs. Williams. Well, this could be it. Yeah, I'd say he's found it. That's for sure. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, that conversation is over. Stephen's out walking in the garden and George finds him and says Papa would like him to take a quick glance at the squadron while there's still a little light left to look through the telescope there. Stephen thanks him and gives him a three shilling piece. And George thanks Stephen profusely, saying they never got their fourpence as we continue to ratchet up our disdain for Mrs. Williams. <laughs> she promises Damn them right. the money, doesn't give it to him, you know, hasn't paid uh, Diana back for her you know, loan. But uh, and then George heads happily off to the village with uh, one of the one of the old sailors there with his with his money in hand. And then. Ian, there follows this great odd capital scene between Stephen and Jack. You know, we saw one in Post Captain, and we get this humorous <laughs> variation now as Jack takes Stephen into the observatory telescope here. And I'm not going to be able to do this justice with my accent. You you should do this one. I just, I this thing, plus I don't think I can keep a straight face to it. I just loved it. Oh, thank you. I'll, I'll give it the best shot I can. It is really, really funny. Jack says, I have the glass, just so. Mind the cantilever, or or never touch that sprocket. Take care of the eyepiece box if you... Oh, never mind. I'll pick them up and clean them later. Now, slide in here and sit on the square tool. Square on the stool. There. Leave the screw alone, for God's sake. Hold on to the turret casing if you must hold on. And this goes on for a while, and still Stephen finally, timidly turns the screw and focuses on the ship of the line. And now we get back to, uh, you know, after all this kind of <laughs> Jack being so anxious about this telescope he's built, Stephen kind of, you know, like you said, being so timid here, but, you know, seeing this ship that Jack's been so anxious to point out to him, he's, you know, Stephen replies, now there is the great elegant ship of the world, said Stephen. A 74, I make no doubt. And Jack says, well done. And he points out his broad pennant, which he points out too. The Admiral has given him permission to hoist. You need permission, you know, he tells Stephen. So, says Stephen, she is the Bologna, the chief argosy of your command. Huzzah, huzzah. I congratulate you, Jack. Why, I declare she has a poop, which adds much to her dignity. I thought, well, we're back talking about small children again. But no, 
though. We're talking <laughs> about the poop deck. And Jack says, actually, the poop also adds to the safety of those on the quarter deck when all the guns and small arms fire, you know, goes on around them. It's nice to have that poop kind of shielding you there. So we're glad to have Stephen. We're glad to have Jack taking care of each other. And here is the squadron. I think we're starting to get pointed in the direction of where I, I, I assume this story is heading. Yeah, this is now is one of those kind of Magnificent Seven montage bits as Jack begins to tell us of all these great ships that he's got building up in the squadron here. We've got the Pyramus, and the Pyramus is a 38-gun frigate. Jack sings her praises, points out that she's commanded by this guy, Captain Frank Holden. Don't think that Frank Holden was a real-life character, so we can skip past him. He says, though, that there are rumors that the Pyramus might be going off on a cruise. She might be replaced by something older and slower. Next, Jack points out the Stately, a 64-gun ship, replacing the Terrible, their other 74, which he then compares in passing to the Horrible Old Leopard, a mere 50-gun. And it's great, once again, to hear that phrase, the Horrible Old Leopard. And the light is fading, and there's still a little bit more to say. So Jack says, "Um, I'll tell you about the rest of the squadron over dinner. And Stephen's very happy to go and see them tomorrow. He wants to attend to give his assistance to take care of medical supplies. And that's going to be an important thing we'll come back to. Finally, he says, how many ships are there in this great squadron? And Jack doesn't really know. And we get this slightly worrying, slightly cautious note. There's been chopping and changing. He says the number and the date of their sailing keeps changing. This is often the case, he excuses it by saying, which is often the case with any squadron being put together. And now he says it's time to go to head to dinner. So Sophie has some time to see him. And then they'll ride down to see the squadron early the next morning. And Mike, if it's time for dinner for Jack and Sophie and Stephen, then I think it's time for a short break for you and me and our readers. Let's come right back after a short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. They've had dinner, and it's bedtime. Stephen's gone to sleep in his usual room at Ashgrove Cottage, but he wakes at three in the morning, and he listens to the sound of birds from his balcony. But what he's really focused on is the sound of Jack Aubrey at three in the morning playing his violin in the summer house by the Bowling Green. And Mike, this is really beautiful writing, and I'm really kind of transported by this. It's very, very touching. Jack starts playing again, and the text says he was playing very gently in the darkness, improvising wholly for himself, dreaming away on his violin with a mastery that Stephen had never heard equaled, even though they'd played together for years and years. And as Stephen's listening to this, he understands that even though Jack, like most sailors, would have longed for the chance of many hours to sleep in his comfortable bed at home. Now that he's here, he can end up waking up at unchristian hours and that he speculates to Stephen that maybe Jack is moved by some strong emotion and that's driving him out to walk around the stables or around the greens and to take his fiddle with him. And we get some commentary, not only from Stephen's point of view, but from O'Brien's point of view as the writer. O'Brien tells us that Jack is a better player than Stephen And the difference is even more evident since he's not playing his shipboard fiddle, he's playing his fine old fiddle, the Guarnerius that we've talked about. 
and in a nice hark back to Jack's modesty, to Jack's unwillingness to be seen in any way to be flashy, Stephen points out here in the text that Jack often conceals the high standard of his own playing and plays down a little bit to Stephen's level. And he had done that to begin with while Stephen's hands were recovering from the torture that he'd had at the hands of the French. And even before that, Jack had hated the idea of showing away. This is this is a very British, you might even say a very English concern about being seen to be too enthusiastic or too much of a show-off. But here now, at three in the morning, in the stillness of the night, with no one listening, no one who could scorn him for his virtuosity, maybe no one to tease him for being a musical queen of the May, Jack let himself go. And Stephen goes on listening to the music, thinking about the contradictions, the apparent contradictions between the big, bluff, cheerful sea officer that most people know and most people like on sight, and whom most people would never think of as having any kind of subtlety, any kind of artistic thought, except perhaps perhaps his desire to survive his opponents in battle. And this intricate, reflective music that Jack's now creating is so unlike the limited spoken vocabulary that a, a bluff kind of uh, seaman-like person like Jack would normally have. Stephen is amazed. He thinks that Jack's hands, his, his craft as a violin player, has gone on to a point that he never thought they could reach. In his own way, thinks Stephen, he is the secret man of the world. But I wish his music were happier. Mm. I, this is a wonderful moment. I'm, I'm taken back to the description of when uh, Stephen heard Jack playing the Bach Chacon many books ago and to the idea that all the way through these books, the, 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 the character and the emotional life of these two quite self-contained men, quite traditional men, is presented to us through the medium of music. And I love how this is, this is about Jack expressing himself and Stephen listening to his friend and reflecting on the music and reflecting on his character, wondering what's bothering Jack that's keeping him up and why isn't Jack happier. And Mike, this also highlights for me that Jack here, the Commodore, the flag rank captain, is a real grown-up. He's not the headstrong boy who dueled with his friends and slashed his arm open. He's not the gambler so much anymore. He's a grown-up, and that kind of gives me the shivers. Yeah, yeah, it, it it does. And it's oddly comforting in a way that just kind of this circle yeah. of life or something that, my God, we've gotten to live this incredible journey. We could go on continuing to live this incredible journey with Stephen and with Jack. I, I love that, yeah. Well, it's like Stephen listening to Bridget across the hall. You don't want to break this thing yeah. up, but... Uh, we have to. And, and O'Brien does it this way. He writes, in the early morning light, however, he was playing Jack Aubrey. And as they walked over the dew towards the observatory, ah, and then he goes on. Jack tells Stephen that he wishes he hadn't appointed Adams as his secretary so that Adams could stay and help Sophie with her papers and her accounting with the estate there, with the you know the complexity and the troublesome nature of the newly inherited Wolcombe estate. You know, Jack says it's full of wicked tenants, poachers, all of them, lots of ties and income taxes. And they spot a bird that Jack asked Stephen to identify. It's a great gray shrike. And we've known forever, you know, since Master and Commander, anytime there's this like, oh, wait, there's a there's a bird. Oh. Oh, there's an eagle dropping turtles. Oh, there's a... <laughs> and, and so this great gray shrike. And I'm like, 
what, what, what? And and the, the strike comes back again. So I think, okay, O'Brien is telling us something again. I've got to go find out about here. Fascinating bird, very protective of its mate. They have these amazing kind of ritual courtships here, part of which, you know, finding a mate depends on how well they'll feed you. And the females stay on the nest for a long time. And the male is watching out from the female, protecting it from predators, bringing it food, a lot of work bringing it food over this long time as over a number of days, it lays a succession of eggs and then waits till they hatch. And, you know, this is according to the text about shrikes. Neighboring males will stray through each other's territory to snatch a quick fling with the resident females. In this, they have an almost one in three chance of success. And consequently, the average gray shrike nest is very likely to contain offspring of more than one male. I'm going, oh, Oh my goodness. So, you know, this, this might be another praying mantis that Stephen's having a look at here. (laughs) I don't know. Um, It's certainly not for nothing that O'Brien has it in there. Yeah. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's a metaphor. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a metaphor. And, and as Jack goes on talking to Stephen, we, you know, we discover maybe what it's a metaphor about. Well, strike me dead with a little bit of juxtaposition here. (laughs) Jack says, we, we have a new parson, a Mr. Hinksy. Mm, what kind of plumage does he have? Well, this is somebody whose plumage we already know. This is the same Mr. Hinksy who had made addresses, who had pressed his suit a little bit with Sophie while they had been taking Mr. Stan up to the East Indies way back in HMS Surprise before Jack finally got to marry Sophie. He says that back then, Mrs. Williams had thought the world of this parson Hinksy. And we remember that she had had her eye on him as a match for Sophie, despite Sophie's then attachment to Jack. And Jack is is really funny, this little uh, kind of rambling, misunderstanding conversation that Jack has here. He was was something at Oxford, a, a wrangler, perhaps. Do they have wranglers at Oxford, Stephen? I rather believe, said Stephen, it is the other place. At Oxford, I think they only have fornicatories, but I may well be mistaken. Well says Jack. It was something creditable at any event. So for those of you who just think this is kind of funny, bucolic English nonsense, it absolutely is funny. And the way that they both kind of banter backwards and forwards with it is really funny. Um, A wrangler is indeed the name given to somebody, an undergraduate, graduating rather, at Cambridge University in mathematics who's placed in the first class. So somebody who takes a first in maths at Cambridge is to this day a wrangler, and there's even such a thing as a senior wrangler, the top person graduating in the class. And it's entirely okay, I think, for Stephen, from an Oxford perspective, to refer to Cambridge as the other place, because that's how those two rival ancient universities talk about each other. So this is all authentic. It, nothing to do, by the way, Mike, with horses, although we might wish it was. Cambridge undergraduates still sit these kind of exams known as the tripos exams. So there are still wranglers, not to mention a senior wrangler at the top of the class every year, whose identity is, strictly speaking, a secret. Now, the fornicatores thing, obviously, it's a, it's a funny joke. It's Italian for fornicators. I'm not sure, but I think he might be misremembering a little bit of Oxford Latin, obscurantist kind of jargon. In Oxford colleges, a servitor, as opposed to a fornicator, a servitor was the name once upon a time given to an undergraduate at an Oxford college who is exempt from paying for tuition or accommodation. So the 
kind of medieval enlightenment edition or equivalent of a full ride scholarship. So that might be what he's thinking of, but I, I can't find anything online that looks anything like fornicator. <laughs> well, and, and we don't suggest you do your own Google search on that word. <laughs> no, it's going to wreck your browser history for sure. Exactly. Oh my gosh. Well, Jack continues talking about this guy, Hinksy said, Mrs. Williams says the reason he never married is that Sophie broke his heart by running off to marry him. And then Jack says, but now here he is installed in our rectory these 18 months at least. Ain't it amazing? And Stephen says, I have rarely been more astonished at another one of these lines that just... I can't stop laughing on on some of these here. And and Jack says that he was prepared to hate him. And we can say, well, yeah, I guess, right? But he couldn't because he's such an open, friendly, agreeable fellow. He's a fair horseman and a good batsman. You know, boy, Jack loves these things. He's well-built, over six foot, boxed at college, and has a broken nose. There you go. Uh, (laughs) We're we're right back. Uh, Physical courage. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's just as you pointed out. Well, and, and Stephen, referring to the broken nose, says, well, that is a recommendation, sure, here. And uh, and I'm, I'm kind of thinking to myself, hold, hold on, hold on, Jack, you protest a little too much here. This guy that was after your wife and his heart was broken and Mrs. Williams is here with her manipulations again. Really? Really? You think he's just fine, right? But You're good with this? Yeah, exactly. Well... Jack adds, again, continuing to praise Hanksy, that he doesn't prate away like other evangelicals and blue light officers, you know, given that he's you know, kind of more of a real man, and that he helps Sophie's mother and Sophie when they're at a loss with their sums, which is very civil. Ah, and he says, but this is such an important job, these sums, and, and Jack just can't in good conscience ask Adams to stay ashore to help Sophie. And I'm thinking, you mean to watch over Sophie? <laughs> you want a man on the scene here. That's what you really want here. So he says he's going to ask Adams if one of his naval friends might be good for that job. So you know, let me find another guy with your accounting acumen to help out here to be my eyes, uh, I think. Yeah. And it's interesting. We're still on this track in this chapter of Jack building up the... The little family, the little coterie of fellow officers and advisors and supporters that he's going to have in this squadron. The title of the book is The Commodore. In order to be a Commodore, he needs some people to command. We've heard a little bit already about a couple of the ships that he's going to command, but we're back here with our, uh, you know, with our montage of building up the, the gang here, the Magnificent Seven. We're back at the telescope. Jack goes in to refocus the telescope and show Stephen the rest of the squadron. Uh, We get a little bit of a side conversation about the telescope that Jack had built himself. And Stephen can kind of tell that Jack's chattering away in a rather anxious style here. And looking back at the Bellona at the flagship, Jack details her guns. And we get this nice little exchange between Jack and Stephen. Stephen says, oh, 78 guns, right? And he says, no, 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 it's a 74. For shame, you must recall that we only make a notional reckoning for carronades. And so Stephen gets put back in his place there. And we get this rather surprise-esque um, apology for the fact that this is now quite an old ship, laid down in 1760, but we can't call her old. And we go on and we detail the bracing and the fine sailing qualities and the number of the crew. And then our attention turns to the stately of 64 guns. And besides noticing the pleasingly Diana-esque black and blue combination of the paintwork on the side of the ship here, 
Stephen notices, therefore, that this captain must be a man of taste. And we know that for 18th century officers like Jack, a man of taste is sometimes a euphemism. And that's exactly where we're headed with this. Um, he says, if the Nelson Checker, if ordinary kind of cream and white was good enough for the great man Nelson, it's good enough for him. And he goes on and says, I don't like saying anything behind someone's back, but given that you, Stephen, are a medico, you must know how I hate the way sodomites are hanged or flogged, which is a kind of odd way of introducing his reflection on Captain Duff. He says, I like Captain Duff, but you must not do it with the young foremast jacks or discipline goes by the board which is a very old-fashioned and really awkward way of dropping in this little reservation that Jack's got about Captain Duff. The stately Captain Duff's command, he says, is an old ship. She's worn out from her time blockading breast. She's slow. She's only got 792 pounds weight of metal compared to the Terrible's 1,000 plus. We go on and detail the Cutter Nimble, the Pyramus that we've already spoken about, Aurora under Francis Howard... Um, we have another frigate, another antique frigate with 24 nine-pounders. Um, we see the Camille 20 guns, and we see Orestes, a brig-rigged sloop. And Stephen says this is this overall is a, is a far more imposing command than he'd imagined, and far more glorious. And it's a, it's a really nice moment. I think he's building up the morale and building up the confidence of his friend who he's heard playing in, in, in solace to himself late into the night. And it's working because Jack says, it is, ain't it? Nice. Well, you know, walking back to the house, they meet Sophie and, and she has an uneasy expression, the book says. We learn that she sent her mother and Mrs. Morris off to Bath, lending them the Aubrey's coach and a pair of horses. And Stephen thinks, well, this is a far more decisive action than he's ever seen her take before, but realizes but that that decision is not what's disturbing her mind. I'm not sure what it is, but she doesn't seem to be worried about that. The three of them eat breakfast together until Killick announces that the Admiral's flag lieutenant has arrived and, and wants to see Jack. Jack says, you know, this is probably just the, the weekly report. I'll be back in a minute. But he's not. Sophie and Stephen sit there talking, drink a second pot of coffee. And Sophie says she's happy to have five minutes with him, with Stephen. Says so she, you know, has hardly actually seen Stephen or Jack since they returned. Jack's always gotten messages from the Admiral. There are always visitors in and out who want to have their boys taken aboard ships. She hopes that this new command is going to lead to a flag for Jack. But she's worried about all this chopping and changing with the squadron. You know, she says Jack has these worries about Parliament. He's got worries about Wolcom. He says, you know, gosh, we were so much happier when we were poor. There's just so much to do, and the bank won't answer her letters. And the two of them, she and Jack, just have no time to talk. You know, and she points out that their anniversary is next Thursday, but that's also the day that there's this big dinner for all the captains in the squadron, and she's sure somebody will get drunk. So she asks Stephen how she finds Jack. And I, and I think you know, we're starting, we're perhaps just starting to learn what's on Sophie's mind. Yeah. And, and there's this continued theme here of everybody's collective worry about how Jack is doing and how he's relating to all of them. Stephen agrees. He says, I'm, as far as I can see, Jack is more worn than I could wish. And Sophie goes on and talks about this sort of reserve, this kind of coldness not, not unkind, but a bit detached that she's seeing from her husband. And then she, she corrects herself and says, maybe that's an exaggeration. 
he sleeps in his study because of paperwork or because he's out late and she knows that he gets up at night and walks until morning. And this is a bit of a weak moment for Stephen. All he can think of to say is, perhaps he will be happier once he gets to see. And that earns him the daggers. That earns him a bit of a reproachful look from Sophie here. Now, Jack comes back in and his mind is straight onto the squadron. They are, he says, losing Pyramus. So just as we expected, there's some chopping and changing going on with the squadron. But we are getting the Thames, a 32-gun frigate. So stick a pin in the Thames, because we'll be back to her later on. Sophie, meanwhile, says, well, let me comfort you a little bit. That's only four guns difference. But Jack points out that these new guns are 12 pounders compared with the old 18. So that's a 300 pound weight of metal versus 467. Um, So he's getting shortchanged in the weight of the broadside that he's got to throw around here. He asks for a cup of coffee to fortify him before they leave, but the pot is empty. And we know that the absence of coffee signifies unhappiness for Jack Aubrey. Sophie tries to fix that. She says, stay, stay, stay. I'll get another pot brewed. She reminds him, meanwhile, that the Fanshaws, Miss Liza and Mr. Hinksy, yeah, him, are coming to dinner. Jack says, well, I'll try to come back. I'll need to make my excuses. However, if the Admiral keeps me, adding that somebody called Fanshaw, who's coming, will certainly understand. And Mike, I think Fanshaw might well be a real-world character. There was a Robert Fanshaw, commissioner of the Plymouth Dockyard, with his daughter Liza. The real-world Robert Fanshaw was actually made post-captain in 1768. He was an MP for Plymouth. He was the actual commissioner of Plymouth Naval Dockyard from 1789 up until 1815. And uh, that's pretty close to Jack Aubrey's career up to now. Right, right, absolutely. Yeah, so we've got a nice little real-world connection here. Riding together towards the squadron, Jack is talking to Stephen, and, and he returns to the topic of Hinksy. He says, you, you remember Reverend Hinksy that I had mentioned? And Stephen said, yeah, you, you said that he, you couldn't hate him. And uh, yeah, and Jack says, well, even though I said I couldn't manage a full-blown hatred of him, he's now so vexed at losing Pyramus that he can say that he don't like him either. You know, he says he visits too often. <laughs> he once caught him sitting in Jack's particular chair, you know, jumped up with some <gasps> excuse. Right. Yeah. And then he and Sophie talk about things that happened while Jack was at sea. And another Shrike <laughs> spies by. Uh-huh. So, oh, another metaphor. Here we go. Well, Stephen starts talking about these birds until he sees, as the text says, the Commodore is sunk in a grim reverie, perhaps thinking about his inferior ships. And the text continues. And the criminal levity of those who sent some thousands of men to sea with no consistent plan, no intelligent preparation, no adequate forewarning. Boy, not a happy thought. No. Well, as they come into town, it turns out that Jack, like lots of other kind of even-tempered people, has managed to digest his ill humor. He's managed to get past it a little bit. To reinforce the good humour here, they meet Barrett Bonden. We haven't had Bonden around for ages, so I'm super happy that he's in in the story. Bonden pulls them out to the ship. They're all quiet until Jack, who doesn't want to worry a ship that's busy taking in stores, says larboard, meaning he's going to go to the incognito side of the ship. He's not going to get piped aboard with the ceremony of the captain. This grieves Bonden, who is a bit like Killick in that he loves pomp where his officer is concerned. He wants Stephen to see the Commodore's new, present glory. But we've had this bit of theme, haven't we, of Jack underplaying his own glory and kind of keeping it all on the down low. 
So they go up the port side, they go up discreetly, and up on deck, Stephen, who's forgotten much of what he knew about ships while he was ashore, seems to be moonstruck. This is not only back aboard ship, this is back aboard a ship that's enormous compared to the scale of the surprise that he remembers, and he's now facing this huge vessel, the Bellona. A familiar face, Tom Pullings, sees this and comes over, welcomes him, shakes his hand, and tells him that two of his assistant surgeons, so not just his one assistant, two of his assistant surgeons are waiting for him in the sick berth. So we got a little hint here that this is a kind of establishment that is a lot bigger and potentially a lot more official than Stephen used to. Tom, meanwhile, sends a fresh-faced youngster, one Mr. Weatherby, in a new uniform to show the doctor the way. And Mike, we get something that we've seen before here. I think the youngster showing Stephen around the ship and doing a little bit of the physical exposition for us. But also, Stephen's on the way to find out about his new sick birth. I wonder how that's going to work out. Right, right. And and I, and I love, you know, so many of our youngsters have grown up in the series. And so it's nice to have a new youngster, youngster here. You know, whether he seems like a really yeah. nice kid here. As they're walking down, he's taking Stephen to the sick birth. He points out where he lives with the gunner and the gunner's wife since he's not yet rated midshipman. And, and he's explaining everything to Stephen in a great deal of detail since Stephen is wearing nothing but civilian clothes. So he says, you know, he assumes this guy knows nothing about the Navy here. He points out where the men sleep in their hammocks at night which is, you know, basically almost contiguous with the sick birth. And boom, here's the sick birth. Stephen introduces himself to these two figures who the text said are waiting in the darkness. So we get this feeling that we're at the end of the big cavern of, of where everybody sleeps and it's dark here. William yeah. Smith, he introduces himself, tells the ship that he used to be on, that he used to work at the hospital at Bridgetown. Alexander McCauley says that he had studied at Guy's Hospital where he was a dresser for Dr. Finley, but this is his first naval appointment. And Stephen asks Weatherby to ask the officer of the watch to please open a gun port. And, and basically, as soon as Stephen says the words, a gun port pops open. And it turns out that Joe Plates and Michael Kelly are sitting outside eavesdropping, as always. And, you know, they, they greet Stephen, greets, you know, he greets them. You know, Joe, how's the headpiece here? They've been together since the Sophie here. They're, they're looking in. And then they get hailed by an officer. I guess they're not necessarily supposed to be right there and they're being called back to their duty. So they run off here. And as you said, you know, you kind of wondered how that goes. Well, how did it go? <laughs> well, Stephen's not happy. He looks at what he calls the immediate abomination that is the sick birth and cries, can such things be? He sees just a few bare cots. He sees a ragged sailcloth hanging between them. He sees the connection to the cavern of the lower deck where everyone is messing and sleeping, where there's breathing and snoring, there's poor ventilation. Harmful, he says to each other, harmful even more so to invalids. Can such things be, he says. It is archaic. It belongs to the Dark Ages. This is the unhealthiest part of the ship. Unbreathable air. Impossible for a sick man to go to the head. Hands trampling to and fro, shouting and bawling at every meal, every change of the watch. And the present stench, although the deck has been cleaned, for it is still wet, another evil point. And he recognises this unclean stench as the smell of a pig sty. They are, in fact, in their sty right in front of the sick berth. Stephen asks, where then are the men on the sick list? And it turns out that when the late surgeon 
had in fact died in an alcoholic coma. We guess that's not an unfamiliar way for a naval surgeon to pass away. The men aboard, the sick men aboard rather, had been taken to the Royal Naval Hospital at Hasler, which until quite quite a way into the 20th century was uh, was still a Royal Naval Hospital down in Portsmouth there. So, Mike, this doesn't sound like a happy start to Stephen's time as the surgeon aboard the Bellona here. No, not at all. And, you know, Stephen's not happy with this. So he says, well, you know, let's have a look at the dispensary. And they have to make their way past the pigs down into the dark orlop to the cockpit, the midshipman's berth, where Stephen wants to go and have a quick look at it. And Weatherby says, well, you know, I couldn't go in if I weren't with you. And Stephen asks why. And he says, well, because the ulcers and the master's mates would scrag him and feed him to the bulldog. And so Stephen, you know, goes in, you know, whether he's not going to open that door, Stephen opens the door, says, you know, gentlemen, good day. And he sees there's an ape there. And one of these guys is kind of trying to teach the ape to stand on his head. There's a bulldog and one of them is unnecessarily choking the bulldog. And, you know, this really disparate collection of individuals here. I think they're about to give a little bit of their midshipman's humor, but they look at Stephen's face and realize this is not a guy to be trifled with. And they all stand up, you know, and Stephen's really just looking at this room. He knows this is his action station. If they go into action, this is going to be his operating room. And he realizes that there's not very many people here. It's built for a lot more. So he thinks this will be fine. So they head aft. And as they do, the hatch to the powder room door opens and the gunner, Rowley, uh, is the former gunner's mate with Stephen in the Worcester back in the Ionian mission. He says, you know, and he kind of pops up, you know, like a, like a jack in the box. And he says, doctor, you know, we heard you were going to be here. You know, we're so glad of it. And Stephen says, well, how is that old nasty splinter wound in your glutamus maximus coming along? And Rowley says, well, you'd never know that I had it. He says, I told my wife that if she could sew as good as a doctor, I'd put her out to work and live at my ease. And then, boom, you know, kind of like a reverse jack-in-the-box, it says, you know, he vanishes and the hatch closes over him. So pops up, pops out. <laughs> He's gone here. I love all this popping open of hatches. It's got this kind of theater punch and Judy thing about all these current characters opening gun ports and hatches and then disappearing again. We're not done with it yet either. Smith opened the dispensary door and says he's been trying to put away stores from the sick and herd board into the medicine chest, but they won't all fit. Here's another deficit in the ship, the size of the medicine chest. Rowley's hatch opens again. He tells once again the line that he said to his wife and vanishes laughing once again. Stephen looks around at all these supplies and says, we're going to have to store it in the starboard dispensary. There's no room here. And he gets the news that this here is the only dispensary. And at this point, this is the last straw. Stephen loses it. And he gives this a great lecture about he has 590 souls aboard to be dosed, we are to believe, from a four foot by three foot cupboard. He says, put them in the cabin. That's my cabin. He means his own six foot by four foot room behind a door over there. And he's off to make his report to the cabin. I'm like, there's a nice little connection to the choice of surname here. Uh, the master's mate, Rowley, who's had his gluteus maximus stitched up by Stephen. The surname might have been inspired, I guess, by Sir Josias Rowley. Sir Josias Rowley was the model for Jack's exploits the last time he was a Commodore in the Mauritius campaign many, many books ago. And and maybe it's a, a, not a coincidence that that name popped into Patrick O'Brien's head when he was writing this character before. Um, I don't think we've ever seen a Rowley mentioned at any other point in the story. Right. Well, 
Stevens popping into the cabin to make his report and, and seeing his face, Tom asks, what's amiss? Jack, you know, kind of stands up, grabs his arm and says, Stephen, you know, have you taken a fall? And he looks very coldly at both of them and says he's discovered, the text says, a sick birth so horrible that I cannot consent to be associated with it. And his voice now rising with passion. If it cannot be converted into something less like Golgotha, more designed to kill rather than to save, I wash my hands of it entirely. And he washes his hands, glaring at their shocked faces. You know, I just, you know, channeling Pontius Pilate here. I wash my hands, I say, the shame of the world. Boy, Stephen is riled up. And they asked Stephen to say, sit, sit, Stephen, sit down, have a glass of wine. Please don't be cross with this. And Stephen asked if either of them have seen this odious travesty of a sick birth. And Jack is very glad to say that he has not. And Tom's like, gulp. He says, well, you know, I, I walked through it on the way to the pigs, but there were no patients in it. So I, I guess I didn't notice how very wrong it was. And Stephen, the text says, told them that a sick birth with no peace no light, no air could not possibly be right in any particular whatsoever. He told them in vehement detail and his energy subsided a little. He told them that the only ship of the line sick birth that he would consent to be associated with must of necessity banish the swine in favor of the Christian sick, must lie right forward under the forecastle, and must have light, air, and access to the head according to the plan of the eminently ingenious and truly benevolent Admiral Markham. Tom says, well, I'll send for the chips and his crew right now. You just say the word and you will have your Markham sick birth before the evening gun. Wow. <laughs> I can't help but be reminded of, of Max Godwin, the uh, medical director on New Amsterdam. Tom Pulling, how can I help? Oh, yeah. oh great. We'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> Let me get out of your way. That's right. It's great. I, I, I feel a little bit bad for Stephen that the, his his good friends and his naval family have taken the wind out of his sails a little bit. I was waiting for a bit more of this to go on because Stephen, in righteous indignation, is a force to behold. But Tom's going to take care of it all. It, it's nice that we got this reference to Markham, Mike. I, I think this is a real uh, a real world reference again. There was a Captain Markham who designed a new healthier scheme for a sick birth in the late 1790s aboard HMS Centaur. This guy, John Markham, was a younger son of the Archbishop of York. Uh, he lost over a quarter of his crew to fever and almost died himself in the West Indies in 1795. So that's quite close to some places where we know Jack Aubrey was in his timeline as well. He briefly was mutinied against. Lord St. Vincent admonished him in a letter after Markham's surgeon had reported to the Admiral the filthy conditions on the lower deck. And in consequence of all of this, and to try to put things to rights, Markham built a well-ventilated sick bay between the two forward guns, which is the location for the pigsty in most ships, and with its own beds and couches, with its own head, washing facilities, and a kitchen, and access to special food. So this specification that Stevens conjured up here is exactly what we guess O'Brien must have read about uh, in the details of Markham's own specification for a naval sick berth. Markham went on to become commander-in-chief of the Channel Fleet. He wanted to use his fleet physician's advice to enable ships to stay on blockade duty for longer. Markham went on to become an admiralty commissioner, and then a, a rear admiral, an admiral, MP for Portsmouth, uh, and an all-round successful guy. So a great reference there by Patrick O'Brien. <laughs> 
Yeah. And it, you know, it's, it's, we all often get the means and ends argument. Hey, you should just do this because yeah. it's the right thing. And, you know, somebody gets smart enough to say, Hey, if we actually didn't have all these ships having to retire because of illness, we'd be a more efficient fighting machine. Imagine how that works, boy. <laughs> only only yeah, we could still think like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, they drink some wine. Stephen's color is no longer blanched by fury. He finally smiles at them. Pullings takes this as his ascent and sends for the carpenter. And Jack says that he yeah. had thought about taking Stephen around to meet all the other captains and the officers of the squadron, but but perhaps making a proper sick berth will take most of his time <laughs> this evening. Mm-hmm. Stephen <laughs> agrees and then goes on to ask Tom, well, Tom, you've got some joiners of your own too. And he's thinking, okay, while Chips and his crew are busy, Tom, let's get your joiners down there and see if we can't install a full dispensary where the swine are currently kept instead of me having to send down to the aft cockpit for every black draft. And then the chapter ends with Stephen saying, Jack, I beg you will excuse me if I put off the meeting until your dinner for all these gentlemen. And then that's the end of chapter three. So this dinner on their anniversary that Sophie had mentioned, we know we've got this maybe to look forward to here. Well, Mike, there's been a lot in this chapter. We've had Mrs. Williams almost earning another huge stack of adjectives for O'Brien to call her by. We've had Stephen as a father and actually having some successful interventions as a father. We've had Jack walking through the night hours playing his violin with incredible music. We've had Jack's ongoing worries about the Reverend Hinksie and all these bird metaphors, the Shrike metaphors around him. And Sophie is clearly unhappy and uncomfortable as well. Yeah. I, I wanted to just, you know, kind of grab Jack up by the collar and say, Jack, you don't plan a captain's dinner on your anniversary, not unless it's a cover for a surprise anniversary party for your wife here. And I, I've been uh, wondering. Rookie era. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, as a Commodore, the first time around, you know, Jack learned how much his success is tied up in the actions of the leaders around him, their skills, their abilities, you know, planning strategy, leadership, not just his, which is, you know, so often for Jack, that's it. It's, it's you know, he's kind of saving the day. And, and I'm wondering, you know, has he thought about that consciously or unconsciously as all of these best ships and leaders seem to be getting traded out for Ones that, at least in Jack's initial estimation, uh, you know, neither the ships nor necessarily the captains are that good. And I wonder if maybe that's part of it, but clearly this dynamic with he and Sophie as well. Yeah. And we're not away from shore yet, even though Jack and Stephen have gone aboard the ship, they're still not aboard and sailing away. So I don't think we're done yet with the history of the uh, uh, of the Aubrey family at home coming to terms with how Jack is and where he's at in his career. Um, we've had all this insight, Mike, into the squadron. We found out about the ships. We found out about the numbers and the details, um, the comings and goings of different ships allocated to the squadron. It seems a bit much for us to take on this early and then to keep changing who's in and who's out. So it has us wondering, who should we keep track of? We've had the names of some captains dropped in. We've had the names of some ships dropped in. We've had all of the interaction between Bridget as well and Padine and Clarissa and this this great insight, this great step forward, it seems to be, in Bridges' development too. Yeah, but but no news on Diana. Still missing. And as you say, you know, we're, we haven't left yet, but it looks like we're getting pretty close, ready to sail. So I'm kind of wondering, do we just not hear about Diana? I really want to. And 
with all this attention about the squadron, you know, I'm, I'm torn between, as you say, in are they getting ready to go? And is this continued focus on the ever weakening squadron kind of foreboding, forewarning about some action that they're going to see or not? I guess mm. only one way to find out. I think you might be on the, on the right track there, Mike. What do you say next week to just a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? I should like that of all things. that Sophie had mentioned, we know we've got this maybe to look forward to here. <laughs> <laughs> Rosie agrees.